Start again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm leaving that in for sure. I'm Kim and I'm married to an addict alcoholic. Hi, Kim. Uh, My name's Chris and I am an addict alcoholic. Hi, Chris. Um, This like last week has been absolutely crazy. We've been recording more days than we haven't recorded. Um, So we're, we're getting back to duck, duck, great. The, the normal like comedy interview show that we do. Um, It's, I guess it's not just comedy. We do a lot of mental health uh, talk as well. Unfortunately, a lot of me too stuff. Yeah. Because that's what's been going on. Um, But I did want to talk about, we have a a guest that's going to be calling in and Kim's going to be hanging out for a little while. I had a family member reach out um, that was, that is struggling with addiction. And it was really tough because I've seen the love that this individual is capable of. And it sucks that because people have kind of made it seem like, of course, you're going to act that way. Um, that that's fuel for them to continue to uh, abuse substances. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it it makes them angry on two fronts. One, the fact that people assume this about him. Two, um, the fact that they continue to let themselves fall into that cycle. And we had some breakthroughs, but there's with people that reach out. I love you guys. I'm it's, it, and it's a part of my recovery. I'm supposed to, um, help, uh, those in need and, and do service work, but I can only do so much. I'm still really early in my recovery. Um, I'm just hitting six months tomorrow. Yeah. yeah you hit tomorrow. 180 days, but technically, yeah, six months is tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah, I hit my 180 days, but, um, like that. Yeah. Whatever. The month mark though is yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So in that regard, like I've learned a lot and there are things that help me for sure. Um, but like I've said on here before, if you have underlying issues, um, don't let it, like if you're trying to help your friends, don't focus on the addiction part, ask them how they're doing. Um, more often than not, there's something else going on and um, could have been going on for a long time and, and is just now starting to um, become a, a hindrance to their lifestyle. And so now you're starting to notice these things, whereas maybe it was kind of like an underlying thing prior. <clears throat> so with this this family member, they are capable of a lot of really incredible things. And I wish that I had more to offer, but because of the pandemic, there's only so much advice you can give. And with people being unemployed and and things like that, furloughed, whatever, if you don't have proper medical insurance, yeah, Yeah. like I did, I got super, super lucky. We say that all the time too. I got really lucky with the facility that I got to go to, the support system that I have. Not everyone has that. And um, so in that regard, like I can't say, go to the same treatment center that I went to because not everybody. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Fiscally. Perfect. Uh, not everybody can afford that and not everybody's 
uh, health insurance covers that stuff. So yeah, and we got lucky because you had a hospital stay before treatment, so we hit your deductible before you got to treatment. So oh right, we got right. lucky in that aspect. I mean, we're still paying medical bills, but in comparison to what we could have been paying for just you know treatment, we got. Yeah, I mean, it's not lucky that you were hospitalized, but health insurance-wise, it just worked. Yeah, and um, uh, in the state of Minnesota, there's something called a, a Rule 25. Yeah, so that's a chemical dependency assessment that you would complete. If you have county insurance, you would contact the county you reside in, and they can direct you in where to get your assessment done. Um, if you have private insurance or insurance through your employer, you would call the number on the back and they would direct you where to go um with hazelton though i know you did a roll 25 when you were in in the hospital because they had us they had you do a cd eval but um i think hazel if i can recall i think hazelton does their own over the phone that's why they called you that day yeah yeah so it really depends what I would do if you are interested in treatment and you're not sure if your insurance covers it, call your insurance company and they should tell you where um, you're in network if you do not have insurance because of the pandemic. Call your the county you reside in and see what you can do. Say that you're struggling and you need, you know, you're interested in treatment and see if they can help you either apply for county insurance or something, but I get it. It's hard. I, you know, meeting patients in the, you know, ER that want to go to treatment. It's not like you, and especially like my job, I can't get people into treatment. Like you have to have an evaluation done to get into treatment, whether like Hazleton did their own or if you get a rule 25 or whatever done, like you need that assessment because that will actually determine if you need inpatient and outpatient you, your alcohol disorder was severe I mean, you've attempted and all that. So that's why you needed the level of inpatient. Some people can just do outpatient and that's okay. Yeah, It depends on your level <clears throat> of addiction. Um, the family member you're talking about likely would need inpatient. It really just depends on where their addiction is, what they're addicted to because, and again, thankfully you were hospitalized before you went. I mean, because yeah. you had already gone through your withdrawal. So you didn't have to be in the medical unit of Hazleton before going to treatment. Right, right. Yeah. Because they need you to be completely um, withdrawn from your drugs or alcohol to start treatment. Obviously, you're not going to get anything out of treatment if you're actively withdrawing. You're going to feel like crap and all this. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know that we've ever talked about that that part of it, but yeah, that's that's a good point. That, yeah, you were home for three days. You had went through withdrawals while you were in the hospital, which was awful. But at least you got medicated, and people were monitoring you. Um, to help you through those withdrawals. And then you came home and you were obviously sober. And then, yeah, you go to initially. So he's and I don't know if every treatment center is set up like this, but Hazleton, there's a detox medical unit area and they had gotten your medical records from the hospital. And, you know, they knew that you had already gone through your withdrawals and you were cleared. So thankfully you got to you. We sat there for what, maybe four hours. Yeah. And then you got to transition to treatment right away, which was huge. Yeah. So all of our stuff. Um, just, sounds easier than what normal like people normally have to go through. We we got lucky in in a lot of those things. Um, how quickly everything kind of happened and yeah. got me into um, the unit that I was on here. I think he's gone. To sum that up, um, as far as getting somebody if they want 
uh, help and they want that, that treatment, um, they, they, it doesn't happen right away. So they, they do, um, if you're going to be there for them. Which sucks because sometimes when people are ready to change and (laughs) ready to start treatment, they want to start right now, which I get like, cause that can switch so quick. Like they get sober all of a sudden, okay, I'm ready to go to treatment. And it's like, mm, just kidding. You have to do all these things before you can get into treatment. And during that time, what if they're like, well, F it. I'm going to just keep drinking then. Yeah. So um, be willing to to reach out in those ways too and, and help the those individuals with um, kind of the tougher side of things because it's easy to shake that stuff off. Um, if it seems like there's any roadblock, um, if, if those people are on the fence about recovery anyways. Um, it doesn't hurt to, if you're, if you're willing to, or finding somebody who's willing to, um, stick with them to make sure that, uh, they get the help that they need. Yep. Okay. And with that, um, we now have, uh, our, our guest, um, caller this week. I'm, I'm really excited because there's an aspect of, um, the rollerblading scene that like, so in extreme sports in general, um, we've kind of talked about it on other podcasts, but, um, there is, uh, like this idea of tour life equals partying and contests as well equal partying. And with extreme sports, you have massive age differences. You can have like a 14 year old who is skating around with people, sometimes in their thirties and they expect not expect, but they kind of forget the fact that these kids are so young and yeah. just, they are unfortunately are along for the ride. So, um, John, I'm so sorry. How do you, how do you say your last name? Labez. Labez. Okay. So we have, uh, John Labez on the line. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. Are you okay with your, your name being out there? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, editor, uh, journalist, photographer, art director, just an all around, very creative and, uh, inspiring individual, I would say. So John, I have, I have many questions. Okay. Well, (laughs) see if I can answer them in any reasonable sort of manner. Okay. Um, so something that I want to highlight right off the bat is, um, your, um, are you, are you first generation, um, immigrant? It's dicey. So on my mom's side, I am first generation on my father's side. He, he's Filipino, like raised in Hawaii, but here's, here's the thing is like him and his father were both like in the Philippines when the U S still occupied it as a territory and they fled the country right as it was a regime change. Uh, long story short, my my grandfather was supposed to be on a flight for the president of uh, the Philippines. The plane crash killed everybody like in it. And, but my grandfather wasn't on the uh, plane uh, with that regime change. It was like, Hey, they had, they were like on a hit list of like people they had to purge. So they petitioned the U S state department to get uh visas to come to Hawaii. And we're, have been in Hawaii ever since maybe the mid fifties, I want to say. Wow. Or maybe early sixties. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather was actually on the USS Missouri 
as one of the journalists who uh, reported on the surrender of Japan. Oh my God! That... Uh, his, apparently, apparently, yeah, apparently, his photos like hanging in the Smithsonian, from what I've heard from my uh, dad's side of the family. That is incredible. Like, um, something that really interested me in in um, conversation that we had a uh, few weeks ago was um, you had mentioned that your parents gave you American an American sounding name to try and make right. things easier for you. Do you mind like embellishing on that a little bit? Uh, the story my, you know, my my father kind of put out there was, well, your mother wanted to name, name you something like Juan Miguel or something very Latin. And he was adamantly against it. He was like, hey, I want a name that my kids can blend into like the society like well enough. Like my father had a very particular name, Lowell. Um, Lowell Olympus, I forgot grandfather's name is ricardo so it's like okay like not super ethnically sounding but what i didn't know until fairly recently was like my my mother's like side of the family like they're all like there's they apparently was farted shoes that left europe like right at the start of like world war ii and ended up like out here and or ended up in latin america and yeah anyway just they were going to name me something very uniquely biblical or Latin. Yeah, but my yeah, my dad's kind of thing was, well, I just want my kids to blend in. Like, my brother's name is Brian. I mean, that's pretty... Brian and Jonathan. You know, pretty standard American names. Wow. You know. Was, was there drinking in your household when you were growing up? Uh, there was. Uh, my father... My he definitely drank. It was like, it was social to an, like to a degree up until like my uh, mother had an affair and, you know, my dad took to drinking. So things got violent real quickly. Um, had some particularly nasty moments that I don't think, you know, like a kid should have gone through, but you know, there it is. Um, one of my own earliest memories was, I assume my father had been drinking. They got into a fight. My dad, like, got a vase and threw it into a, like, bedroom, like, vanity, smashed the damn thing, like, the bits. And, like, my mother was, like, cleaning it, like, cleaning it, crying, like, like one of those old uh, 50s-style, like, rocket vacuums. Oh, and that's, like, my er like one of my earliest memories. And um, I remember being at that age being like, wow, I never want to treat a woman like this, like, and I was probably like four or five. <laughs> like, oh. like that has stuck with me. Like, so when, yeah, like I didn't want to ever treat anyone like I care about, especially like women, like just from there on out, just like I lived it. I mean, like, and on both sides, it wasn't like my, my dad was the only one who was not, you know, was violent or not even like, I don't even want to call it violent, but just, tumultuous shit happen. yeah tumultuous right yeah um mother's side they had parties like my mother was in her 20s like she was 20 when she had me oh wow and you know like her sisters are all within that same sort of range and you know what they had parties and they had, they brought their kids with them they got smashed drunk like hanging out with each other and you know 
another early memory. I think I was like eight or nine and probably, yeah. And my mother was like so pissed drunk, like on like the floor of my like, um, this, uh, her sister's house, my aunt's house, just being like, you know, just like completely passed out. Like, I think she was like calling for me to be like, Hey, let's go. I'm like, dude, my sister, you know, my aunt was like, dude, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> like, wow. so there's, yeah. Um, it sounds a lot worse when I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, but, um, sorry, go ahead. But those are things you yeah, remember no, too, you know? Well, and I, so what I was going to ask was, um, when you were that young, did you associate it with drinking or did it seem like something that adults do? You know what I mean? Like kind of how we rationalize things when we're younger or try to make sense of things. But looking back on it, then you say, oh, yeah, that was drinking. No, I, I, no, I definitely knew it was like drinking. It was just like it was the only time that ever really like happened. Um, my mother hung out with his, her sisters. They partied. My father went out with his friends and drank like or he was just at home drinking to kind of forget that his marriage is falling apart. <laughs> That's so much to deal with at such a young age. I mean, I, man, now I have 10 times the amount of questions, <laughs> but, um, what, what part of California, uh, did you guys grow up in? Properly Los Angeles, uh, Echo Park. Uh, I have lived here in this neighborhood for almost all my, all my life, except for college years in Santa Cruz and London. I've like spent most of my time in this neighborhood. I refused to kind of move for whatever godforsaken reason. Wow, that's very interesting as well. Yeah. So, when when you see that kind of stuff, because is it just uh, you and your brother? As far that's as correct. siblings go, yeah. And is is he younger or older than you? He's four years younger. Okay. Was there any? Yeah, like feeling of needing to be protective of him in any of those scenarios? I want to say yes. Like it definitely, we were definitely peas in a pod kind of like we could confide in, confide in each other like what in what was going on. It was like the only other person who knew what was going on was my brother. But on the other hand, like he resented me for like a host of other reasons. Like, being more like my parents who were academics as he got more cognizant of, you know, like kind of his own, you know, like his own proclivities, he just sort of resented me for it. So. Well, and that's tough, man. So, be, you know, so we kind of, yeah. So we kind of split up, like we stopped really being close. I think after about like 12, 13, somewhere in that range. So when, when, when you started to get older, did seems did, I'm sorry. Did things seem to change in the relationship that you had with your parents um, in a sense that it felt less hostile or, or was it the majority of your, uh, your childhood? See, I'm pretty weird about this. Like I've been able to compartmentalize it and go, you know what? It wasn't the total sum of what they were because my father wasn't an ideal like parent in that way. But on the other hand, you know, I have like, snippets that I can remember where he's like a very much like an involved parent. And, you know, it's so like even throughout the whole fallout with my, like 
my mother, which is like, okay, hey, he was super supportive about like my interest in science. He was super supportive of me taking on some pretty uh, outlandish uh, hobbies. Um, but my parents divorced. He, you know, like my both my parents gave me the option or gave both of us the option to say, who do you want to live with? And I chose my father, despite all the violent kind of like or your tumultuous upbringing. And he turned out to be a pretty decent guy. I mean, supported me through college. Uh, helped me kind of kind of get me like straight in like in life. Uh, let me stay with him after college. And even after I like even after I had like moved out, um, you know, he was like, yeah, he called me like, hey, John, like I left food on the, like the stove. I'm like, first come, first serve. I'm like, I don't even live here. Like, <laughs> like why, are you get, why are you getting me food? Or, like, he'd be like, hey, I left, you, like, I left groceries on like your desk. I'm like, okay. In that sense, did, did his drinking habits change? Like, did they ever go through any type of sobriety or did it just seem to kind of simmer and get better? I think like my parents splitting up was the best thing that could have happened to them. <laughs> like I know most people are like, Oh, my parents are splitting up and I'm, I guess I should rewind and be like, so I knew my parents were going through stuff. It wasn't like, you know, this isn't even just watching them. I was like 10 or 11 and I found some like three, four page plus letter that my father had written out like to her. And it was something like, we're only together for the kids. <laughs> like, you know, like at that really early age, and I was aware of, you know, I was privy to a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have, but I was maybe 12, yeah, 12 or 13 when they were already dating other people. And the only reason my parents officially divorced was she uh, met someone and married the guy when I was 15. So, you know, uh, that's where I do have a half sister, but she hadn't kind of played, like she kind of, she kind of didn't factor into the whole thing until like much later. Um, but as far like, I'm sorry, I'm kind of like straight. From the no, 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 you're uh, okay. Um, so did he go through any type of sobriety or um, any changes in his drinking habits? I think after the, yeah, after they divorced, yeah, it was, they, he definitely changed his habits. Like it just became kind of like a, I hate saying it just kind of became a weekend thing rather than like, Hey, I'm at home and just pop, you know, pop and tops, you know, like sure. it was a difference. Like one is, you know, one is very much, Hey, I want to go have with my, have fun with my friends. And my dad led a really wild lifestyle, like up until the end. Um, if I said any of it, I would just be like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Well, you're dead at what now? Well, I mean, but, you don't have to share uh, any of that stuff. No, it's, uh, it's I mean, sports and all, I mean, it, it is kind of what it is. And I mean, he would go out with my, my rollerblader friends to go party. Like, and really? he was in his sixties. <laughs> yeah. I was like, there was one point where I, I was seeing them maybe once a month and he was seeing them every week. Oh, wow. <laughs> we lived together. That's wild. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And the stories I heard from my friends are just like, what the, okay. But otherwise, he was a pretty straight cut guy. I mean, he was just, you'd just be like, oh, he's just kind of a boring dude. And then you like, once I kind of, the more I knew about my father, the more I knew, I was like, wow, like, 
I'm not sure why you settled down. I'm not sure why you had kids because like <laughs> you lived in Florida, like in the Florida Keys in a VW doing acid and like with a record player in like the trunk. <laughs> okay. Well, why did you have kids? That is super interesting. <laughs> um, and with my mother, I mean, her habits have changed. She doesn't, really do any drinking unless it's with all her sisters and they're all kind of going back to the divorce for two seconds. Um, I kind of cut ties with my mother after about 15 up until age 30, 32. I was just kind of, it took a long time for me to kind of get over what, what had happened. And once my father uh, passed away a few years ago, um, we kind of got to talking about what, what, you know, what were the details of what had happened? It's like, Oh, okay. So I've had this all wrong. Okay. Like the going back, the affair was really just my mother doing something that my father had already been doing. Apparently he had like, he had had like five, six plus affairs that like she knew about. Like, Ugh. Oh, so you both kind of, like did each other like that okay well you know what i wish you told me this sooner because i wouldn't have been so upset about things doesn't make it better just just get, you know just contextualizing things sure sorry so, that's complete family history but it's probably not no man I, anything, I think that's but, that's uh, important because like sobriety and like all of this stuff is not as simple as just i saw drinking i therefore then thought i had to drink and that's the end of it. Yeah. Like there's all of these factors that come into uh, an individual's perception of what substance is right. and the role that that plays in their life later on. So I, right. I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're sharing this stuff because I think, and especially for your story, like I think that the way that you carry yourself is, I would, I, I don't think anybody would know all of that shit because you're very professional, you're well-spoken, and I mean, I know you're like kind of laughing as you're telling these stories, but it's more in the sense of like, man, can kind of can't believe that that shit happened because I'm here now and everything's fine, but it's it doesn't take away from the trauma that you experienced. I have just kind of worked really hard to kind of be functional and I, I i like to joke like wow you know given everything i've gone through i'm like why am i not a serial killer honestly <laughs> like yeah. I, I i should be much more violent i should be much more like prone to crime or whatever i should be like living like i think that's um always something that i'm like really really appreciative of like recognizing uh, when people go through that stuff and they still seem to have um, this uh, really um, bright side uh, to to life because, you know, like you're saying, all things lead to where you could have been. Um, as you were growing up, what was your view on drinking? Like, at, you know, when we become teenagers, that stuff kind of gets introduced and did you did you were were you did you stray away from that kind of lifestyle for a while or you know it's really funny like it's like a monkey see monkey do moment where like i remember being maybe eight or nine my mother would take me to some like backyard party that like one of her friends had thrown and 
there were some of us kids that were like, oh, hey, you know, the kids, you know, the adults are out drinking beers. So, hey, we snuck out beers and tried to drink beers and found it absolutely disgusting, um, you know, at that age. And it's kind of like cigarettes. I mean, my dad was a prolific smoker then. And, you know, hey, you, you try it once, you're like, oh, what is this? But beyond that, I was 12 years old and I had a creative writing like class at the time. And we had to do a biography on our, you know, our parents. I chose my dad and wow, he was not going to like BS, you know, 12 year old me because he's like, he started to talk about like what he had gone through. Like that's how I learned about the Florida Keys. That's how I learned about every drug he had ever done. <laughs> just like this long laundry list. When you were 12? Like, when I was 12, right. He was just like, you know, this was for this biography. It was like, you know, like, hey, I've, like, I've done pot. I've done, like, acid. Uh, I did heroin tr- twice. I had to, like, split it, like, six months because I knew if I did it again, I'd become a junkie. I've done, like, angel dust. I've done PCP. Uh, like, he just kind of listed it all on the t- Like, I've done mushrooms. He just, like, listed this long, long laundry list. And me not really realizing any of that time, like, I put it in the biography. Luckily, my, you know, my, I had to read this in front of the class, mind you. And luckily for me, my teacher was an old hippie himself and just kind of, like, I got this silent nod, like, you know, you probably shouldn't talk about this, but, you know, I understand where you're coming from, kid. Wow. <laughs> But he kind of demystified it, uh, demystified like drugs and that kind of culture for me because I was a backyard like metalhead punk kid. I went to these three dollar shows where that people drank, people smoked, people did like prolific amounts of you know illicit things there, and I was straight edge. Like I didn't, I didn't smoke, I didn't drink i didn't do any of that i just was there for music and i was surrounded by it constantly but it wasn't anything i particularly felt pressured to do like or i didn't want to do personally um probably didn't really drink until maybe 18 19 in college do you think that the the stuff that you saw growing up affected any of that in, in the sense that like, ah, it just doesn't seem like it's going to add anything to where I want to go. I think having experienced it firsthand, it definitely shied me away from it. I mean, it just didn't seem like anything I wanted to personally do. And when I was, while I was part of the whole, you know, that, that whole backyard culture, all my friends outside of high school were all music people who were in their 20s and 30s. Like, I was hanging out with people who were way the hell older than me. And I, I honestly don't really understand why they were like, yeah, let's let this, like, nerdy little, like, goth kid, like, come with us. But, you know, I'd be home at 3, 4 in the morning or whatever and get, get dropped off. And, you know, my dad was anyway, which just like, oh, okay, like, you're home? Okay, cool. Well, you weren't arrested. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, you know, there'd be some like Saturday night movie, and he'd be watching, and I'd just like come home and be like, "Hey, oh, what, what's the movie you're watching? Oh, uh, someone with Sandra Bullock." And I'm like, "Oh, really? Which one?" Like, very matter of fact. Um, like my grades were, you know, A's and B's, so he didn't seem to have a reason to police me. 
I see. As long as my grade, yeah, as long as my grades were good, he didn't seem to care what I was up to, really. Which was not the same for my brother. <laughs> that um, when he was, and I mentioned this deal, like when he turned twelve. I mean, that's when he started drinking. Um, he did not take it, take you know, take this the same route I did, and he been an alcoholic now since he was 12 he is 32 now as of a week ago well and i mean that goes to kind of what we were talking about before which is that everybody deals with trauma differently and i think everyone has a different level of resiliency too like we all have different levels of resiliency so you me me and you can get in the same car accident and the way you adjust to the trauma after and i do is going to be different that's actually a, a great analogy um, because a, a car accident can seem like nothing to one person. And every time somebody hears a, a car door slams mm-hmm. for the next person, it's sends them into PTSD. So, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> with, um, with the relationship between you and your brother kind of waning, like, did he skate at all? Uh, he did. He was, uh, he actually started rollerblading before I did and it was him and the neighborhood kids just kind of rolling around and doing their thing. By the time I picked it up, the neighborhood kids just sort of stopped. I stole his rollerblades to like learn up the street and, um, but he still would be the one to introduce me to what would be my core group of friends today. Oh, wow. uh, that's yeah. Like, uh, one of the guys I've, He's probably the oldest, like oldest friend I have now at this point. Um, I think we, I've been skating 22 years. I've known this guy 22 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he, he's kind of like my unofficial family at this point because we like our families are so intertwined. Um, then we have my, some of my older, not older friends, but um, other friends who I'd meet because I met that core group. But it was really my brother who introduced me to like these friends because he was in a class with like one of them. And it was like a whole apartment complex, like full of rollerbladers. I think like that complex had like 30, 40 kids who skated <laughs> wow. like just on their own. Yeah. And that's got to be tough. So d- do you struggle with that? Um, in the sense that like there are there are things that you owe to your brother um you know things that have obviously made a huge impact on you is it frustrating watching him go through what he's going through um knowing that there's these these great things that he has to offer does that make sense i i kind of worded that a little strange but no i get the gist of what you're saying i mean he I mean, he saw out of rollerblading fairly quickly and he ended up a B-boy like every other rollerblader of the, the early 2000s. Like you just ended up in B-boy culture, which I don't think really helped his, you know, his case stray away from like drinking and drugs and that whole sort of culture that was so prevalent then. Like it, it's, it's a B-boy production, like, uh, Bill, you know, Brian Bell and yeah. all that. Um, yeah that kind of um, lifestyle kind of appealed to him. Well, and I mean, what, what was, what was the, um, what was your neighborhood like 
back then? Was, was there were there a lot of kids that were using? Was there any like gang related stuff going on that he was exposed to as well? The echo. Okay, so this is like he never got involved in the gang portion of it, but he definitely was like. He did, you know, he did graffiti. He was a bomber. He was part of a crew, you know, that multiple crews. Um, but that's very separate from like gang culture out here. Um, but the neighborhood I grew up in Echo Park was throughout the eighties, nineties and early two thousands, very like entrenched in gang culture. Like I got held up at like gunpoint, like in broad daylight, just going to go do laundry for like a Walkman. Ugh. Like this was maybe 2001. <laughs> like how many Walkmans like are really floating around there? Um, I got to watch one of my friends just get beat up for a very, like very similar thing. Like four Walkman, three guys pulled up on him and just was like, stop, where are you from? Kid up wailed on him. And unfortunately for me, I was with a friend of mine who was part of the 18th street gang. His cousin is actually, the leader of that at the time and he was very much like i want to intervene but it would cause like a gang war like for me to intervene so just you're just gonna have to let your friend get beat up for a walkman oh fuck man okay yeah i don't mean to deviate too much but did do you do you go to therapy like but how now I'm, I'm more curious because <laughs> how, how are you able resiliency, to resiliency, Chris resiliency? Yes, I know. But when I hear this stuff, the empath in me is like, how the fuck do you process these things? And if your brother was having to see this shit too, like you, I mean, it seems like you guys dealt with these things in very different ways. And yeah, I'm just um, curious as to like, what is it that you how do? How did you process through yes. all this, and how did you cope through all the trauma that you've um, experienced? Thank you. See, this is again, like I said, I kind of have a tendency of compartmentalizing it. It's just yeah. one of those. I think it's like a funny way of how I deal with things. Um, Real yeah, quick, so I'm going to what therapy, does that's, what yep. does compartmentalize mean? Uh, I just sort of split up all my experiences in their, into their own little boxes. I you know, see. They, they ex- yeah, they exist as their own index cards that don't really intermingle unless I want them to intermingle. You know, um, and I, so I have kind of a very odd kind of condition actually called alexthenia. Um, it is not quite recognized as its own condition in the uh, DSM, but it is kind of this, hey, you're really bad at like connecting emotions. My emotions are almost separate from the physical response. I will recognize the physical response before I recognize the emotional response. I am more aware of things on an intellectual level, but I'm not very aware of them on a, you know, on an, like, I can't intuit very well. Like, if if you're an empath, you're in tune with those emotions. If you're someone with alexthenia, you tend to, you don't really process that you're going through this. It's more like, it's like a time delay. It really is like a time delay because you'll be experiencing the emotion on a physical level and you'll be going, what? Why do my hands hurt? Why do I feel flush? 
like, what's going on? And you're like, you're like, why does my stomach feel sick? I'm like, I have no idea. And then, you know, you'll kind of, that emotion is going through the background until you hit this brick wall where you can't contain anymore. And it just turns into this, like, it's either zero or it's 60. Wow. Like there's like, there's all, like, there's no in between. I've been aware of this for the last four, five years, something like that. And I've been able to kind of intellectualize the whole thing and go, okay, Hey, what are the physical signs? What are they, you know, what do they um, connect to? How does that relate to the, like the emotions I want to portray? Okay. You have to kind of, if you can figure out the early symptoms and you know what to look for, you have to kind of explain to people in a very matter of fact, like, Hey, I may not be able to figure this out. Uh, if it looks like I'm upset and I don't look upset, honestly, just ask me. <laughs> wow. Um, so, so I think my upbringing is very much the reason why, you know, I have this. Um, I was my way of kind of, functioning so like hey how do i you know how do i process all that you don't <laughs> it's almost like it processes in the background yeah. so like when my uh you know like when my father like had his stroke and spent essentially six months eight months kind of at, in nursing homes and just kind of completely like uh mentally you know like deteriorating uh, i mean i saw him every day i just didn't really process that it was all going on. But on the plus side, it keeps you really level-headed when, because that emotion hasn't hit you. I almost know that, like a, like I said, there's a time delay. So I get to go, okay, I have this many days. I have this many weeks. I have this many months to kind of, before it actually clicks in my head. So then I have to go do what I need to do and process it all and go, okay, like dealing with the, like the medical profession, you can't be emotional. It's like, it's very much like, okay, what's going on? Okay. Can you explain to me what's going on? Can you tell me what I need to do? Okay. Let's do this. And while someone may be grief stricken, I'm more like, okay, like I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Till you know, one day it's just like, oh yeah, I am not okay. <laughs> wow. But that's what I mean. It lived in, like everything kind of lives in, in its own box, but, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at being able to integrate the two. And, but it also can cause some severely screwy issues as a person. You're like, ah, like, why do I feel this way? Like, I'll put it this way. Um, when you feel hungry, like you may think to yourself, my stomach hurts. I feel hungry for a good chunk of my life. It was more like my stomach hurts. What the hell? Oh, <laughs> like, I see what you're that. saying. Uh, like, there's nothing like, that what, you can associate this? it with, right? And then it just like you know, like I was such a like because I skated and you know had that. I, I was chronically like skinny for so many years. I mean, like, like I'd almost say like, whoa, you know, I had friends like look at my friends and go, yo, were you doing meth then? You know, you're you're so <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I just wouldn't realize it. Now I'm like, oh, my stomach hurts. I should really eat, huh? Like, that's what that means, huh? I should eat. You want an honest answer? Probably how you know how I dealt with my entire childhood. That's 
probably why I was able to kind of come through it okay, which was everything lived in you know, separate boxes and every everything I experienced and felt well, it, really didn't get a chance to, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> coalesce into something uh, else. But then again, hey, like, I don't know, a- a- angry teenage me would probably disagree. Uh, that that is interesting in the sense that so um when, when how long ago did you find out about this this condition uh Four years ago? about five years ago five. give or take uh well maybe longer now because i was <laughs> i think i was 29 so i'm 30 yeah okay so yeah 29 36 yeah so, so did it well wow, even longer now so when when you saw the things that your brother was going through would it feel frustrating because there's some things that feel more cut and dry to you? You know, I'm actually like in, in this way, I'm actually pretty understanding because like because of my eclectic childhood, because of the people I knew who had, you know, to me, like I, one of my earliest, uh, close friends, uh, in my teens. I mean, he told me like he was, he had this full breakdown explained to me, like he was hanging out with one of his friends and, they were just like peas in a pod and I guess his friend, you know, fell into heroin use and he ended up watching his friend like tie on heroin in front of him. And I got to see him full, just, just retching and, you know, full sobbing. And this is a guy who's like 250 pounds, like did backyard wrestling, just like this top sort of dude and just, fully in the barrel of that. And, you know, I got this, a lot of my, like, a lot of my friends, I guess because I wasn't particularly judgmental, I guess, would tell me a lot of these experiences. So when I got to be older, I was just like, dude, it, it takes, it takes all sorts. Like it's, you know what? It's not my place to judge. That makes you that much more of an enigma to me because, (laughs) You you have these um these aspects of yourself. Oh, sorry. Hold on, real quick. Okay, so it's just you and I from here on out. What what's your limit when it comes to trying to help someone? Oh, that's okay. That's a good one. <laughs> um, damn. Like, do you feel like you've been taken advantage of in, in, uh, yeah, I, I think early on, because I wasn't really keenly aware that, Hey, people will take as much as you give them. And I think as I've gotten older, especially in my thirties, I just kind of had to go. I, I got really tired of doing it. Like, Hey, I can give you as much as I can possibly give you, but, just to let you know, I'm very upfront and say, just to let you know, there was a breaking point and you're tirelessly close to that. So if you want me to help you, you need to like, you can't just use me for support. You can't just use me for, um, propping up whatever shenanigan you're up to. You have to show me that you want actual change because at some point I'm, I'm just, you know, you're just, you're just using me as a mouthpiece for your own desires, your own like 
unbidden thoughts. Like you have to tell me like that, but and not even just tell me, you have to show me that this is, you want to commit to this sort of change or to like, to what you, you're coming to me about like, Hey, you want me to help you. I will help you as much as I can physically help you. Well, and unless you're a fucking drug and chemical dependency counselor, like it's, it, it's hard to know what is, um, what seems to be the, the person that you know coming through and it looks like they're going to make change and what's ramping up to simply get as much out of you as they can so that they can go back to using, um, in the way that, that they see fit. Right. Um, and, um, uh, so, and with, um, with rollerblading too, there's so much of that. Um, there's a lot of assuming, um, when a new company shows up, there's uh, an assumption that that company therefore has money and they're going to be able to pay me as long as I support them in a way that I see fit. And there's, there's all kinds of tumultuous dynamics and, and all of these misunderstandings. I don't want to say ignorance, but to a degree it's an ignorance to kind of how industries really work. And I would imagine that um, you've been put in some hairy situations in that regard as well. So it seems like for a large chunk of your life, you've year in, year out kind of been sub- submitted to that type of, uh, I don't mean to call it abuse, but <laughs> situations that I wish you hadn't been put in is what I will say. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Like, I didn't personally intend on ending up in, like, the blade industry to sort of happen and just you shoot some photos of someone, and next thing you know, it's like, oh, hey, can you shoot photos? Can you shoot photos? Then you're working with people more and more often, and then you kind of, I don't know, then you end up at BMAG somehow. I don't <laughs> I don't understand how any of this really happened for me, but I've definitely gotten experience the uglier side of the industry, and, you know gotten to hear some stories that you know they're genuinely heartbreaking i mean yeah well and you and i have um sorry i was gonna say you and i have talked about how um that age dynamic and you had uh given that example of uh in the music scene how how that happened to you um but in the skating scene we've we've seen that happen a lot and it's only within the last like year that I've even thought about that like the fact that I was hanging out with kids that were much younger than me but because their talent was at the same level if not better I then kind of viewed them as an equal or as a peer um, and I think let them get away with more than than I should have and there's just a lot of um um God, what's the, what's the phrase? Um, culture, <laughs> assumed culture as far as, um, I mean, that's, I think what came, came with, you know, the videos of what the early 2000s, um, it portrayed that lifestyle in a way that everyone wanted to do. I mean, being, you know, being with my friends, you know, like driving around and like playing, you know, biggie smoking, uh, smoking blunts, you know, and, 
drinking 40s. I mean, that was really what my friends were all about at that age. I hate saying part of that was the emulation factor because, hey, that's what was out in videos at the time. Yeah. It just kind of came to, like, you know, came hand in hand. And it's kind of a very odd, it's an odd thing about rollerblading where we idealize this golden era of rollerblading, but it also came with this, like, this side culture, this, or this, like, really, you know, this additional cultural ma- uh, mantra, uh-huh. uh, which was, you know, party. Yeah. Like, par- yeah, party the way you saw, you know, the people in these videos party because you're, you know, like, you're young, dumb, and, you know, old, like, indiscriminate fluids. <laughs> oh. well, and I think too something that I was just thinking of like you and I grew up in the era where we didn't see what was happening in rollerblading until a video would drop and right. so there was this this uh, this dopamine rush of like having a new DVD in your hand or having a new VHS in your hand are you are you outside right. by the way no that, that's my cat oh <laughs> okay Hello. but but the um, ha- like so there's this really like positive thing that's associated with the touch and feel of that. It's getting all sorts of horrible. No, <laughs> continue. The so having the all of that excitement and the, all that build up, and you're dedicating you know thirty to an hour 30 minutes to an hour of watching whatever the fuck is going to happen on this and you're storing that and for most skaters like we would watch those videos over and over again one to like learn new tricks see what else is out there what type of hammers are going down um but the stuff that they whatever they decided to throw in there you were getting exposure to that and i don't think a lot of people thought of that or thought about that when they were making these skate videos. Yeah, I don't think that was anything anyone really intended on. You know, it's just that it was part of the culture. You filmed it, and then it got packaged out to other people within it. And when your core demographic is all under the age of 20, well, guess what? They're going to, you know, they're going to be inoculated to it. Yeah. So were there, um, what did you, how do I word this? I'm, I'm trying to keep it vague so that it doesn't like point to any one person, but, um, <laughs> in skating, were there, um, people using drugs or using alcohol beyond kind of what seemed normal? but nobody was really doing anything about it. I want to say like a, you know, every brand, like Brian Bell production, you know, like one of my first videos from him was wanted and that's all it was, was just you know, gang fights, getting drunk, throwing up, smoking out. And it was just a different kind of culture that you're like, Oh yeah, this is just some wild, you know, wild, you know, wild stuff to watch. I mean, it's to me, the 2000s like version of watching like an in like a party on Insta Live or something or you know someone on TikTok. I mean that's really what this <laughs> is. This is wild like wild like crap going on. And how about let me pose the question in a different way here? 
Okay. When you started to hang out with other crews and meeting new people, okay. were you put in scenarios that made you uncomfortable or a little on edge um, that maybe you'd seen in skate videos, but seeing it in person felt totally different? Amongst people that I knew, I mean, it was like, hey, John, do you want to smoke out? Yeah, like, or do you want to, like, do you want to, you want to drink? Like, that's just, what well, I'll put it this way. My, my dad's kind of like very, we have a fair kind of attitude about everything. It was just like, yeah, okay. All my friends would come to my house to go drink and smoke out and do their wild crap, knowing my dad wouldn't care. Uh-huh. But I didn't really like participate in any of that. Like my house was the hangout because I had such a, you know, cool way back dad. So, you know, he, my dad would go to his room. My friends would be partying in the, like, in the living room till like two, three, four in the morning. Um, That's really interesting. So what, did, what did that feel like to you? Like, did it, did you feel like people were using you in, in that regard as well? Oh yeah. No, that was like, they knew they, they could take advantage of it. And they did. I mean, even in high school, I mean, I had friends who would ditch to my house because they knew my dad would not care. He'd be like, all right, cool. Uh, they're your responsibility. Their parents call us on you, dog. Like, okay, thanks, dad. <laughs> like, um, and it sounds a lot worse saying that but, um, well, I mean, I, I don't like, I, I want it to feel like that because there could be people listening to this that are going through that. And they, because it's been a part of their life for so long, they don't give it a second thought. And I, I want people to know that like you deserve more than friends who are going to take advantage of you in that way, especially if it's just so that they can use and like not have to worry about somebody giving them a hard time for, for drinking or, or using drugs and, and, and all that stuff. So like, I think it's important to, yeah. for it to feel heavy. Yeah. I, I, you, you, <laughs> and I know this is like the empath fucking codependent side of me, but your story deserves to sound as heavy as it's coming out. Like, uh, you you do a very good job of making it easy to digest and i appreciate that about you but like it's 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 not right what you were put through it's not right and and not to i'm not that i'm blaming anybody but i it's not it's not something that people should be submitted to and i just want people to know that they deserve respect and they deserve you know, happiness to whatever extent that means to them. If that just means that on a Saturday night you leave like a skate session or whatever, and you just get to go home and decompress rather than being put in charge of a bunch of people, then I, I, yeah, I hope that you, you know, that you deserve that. Yeah, I do now, but it's just, like I said, it, like when you're going through it and you're just kind of with your friends and, uh, you know, I'll be frank, I mean, the big draw for me with rollerblading, like, it wasn't really like the whole skate part in the beginning. It was very much community, like, 
I accidentally ended up in aggressive inline because, like I said, I just like I picked up my brother's rollerblades and skated around and kind of just butts around recreationally. And in high school, I had I met guys in my PE class that were like, "Can you do a three Like they're talking rollerblades. They're like, "Can you do a three sixty? Yeah, I can do it. You know, they're just going back and forth. I'm like I rollerblade, you know, not knowing what they meant. <laughs> And, you know, like, I had no idea about this culture. And I just was like, like, hey, come, uh, come hang out by another rotunda. We're you know, a bunch of us are over there. I'm like, okay, great. I'll be out, like, I'll be frank. I'm like this, like, nerdy little, like, academic kid. And ending up in an wedding was, I suddenly had, like, a friend base and was part of this community that accepted me for any, you know, for anything and everything, you know. Yeah. And I guess I bring I, I guess I bring that to like my ethos now like with the winning, which is I would I want people in the community to be involved. I want there to be that connection. I still believe in it in this way that I think is rather idealistic considering like all, all the back end. It's like well, once you kind of get into the industry side, you, you never really. You're like, oh, you don't really want to know these things. But, oh, sure. But that wasn't really the question. <laughs> no, and that's okay. Uh, more importantly, uh, frontside Savannah or Alleyoop Unity. It's a Savannah. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I feel the same freaking way. So, but um. <laughs> Oh man, that 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 low key trick question. Okay, hey, and it's like answer that wrong. I am going to be answering hate mail my DMs for weeks. <laughs> um, I, but, I I'm curious as well. Um, with so the the way that you feel towards the community now, um, and I I think the article that you did uh, most recently when it comes to. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and all of the things that are happening right now. It's great that you look to what um, could prevent somebody from enjoying skating, which is a really simple way of saying, what's your home life like? How are you sleeping? And are you being unfairly, uh, I hate to say persecuted, but are you being unfairly treated just by the way that you look and how do we change that narrative? And so thank you for doing that. And, um, I hope that you continue to do that. I, I think that's a, a really, really great thing. I mean, no, no one in my blade media was talking about it. And internally we didn't really know how to process it. Um, I, I, at the, uh, BMAG staff, and it just kind of clicked in my head. It was okay. Like I kind of owe it to the community to talk about it. If no one's going to talk about this, then, and I'm looking at the staff and thinking, okay, like no slight to anybody, but y'all are white males. Like yeah. you don't really know what this is like. And I'm going, oh crap! I have to write this, don't I? <laughs> no, like I'm thinking about more and more about you know who who's in charge of Blade Media and going, wow, 
white males. Okay, so you're not going to talk about this. Well, at least not in the way that it deserves to be spoken about. I, I suppose. But it's just something that wasn't being talked about, and I felt like I needed to do it for the community. If only for the sake of, hey, it's not important who I am, it's not important you know, what my position in all this, it's that you recognize that this is a thing and that here's how you can relate it to your own lives. And I had people message me and be like, oh, I completely forgot that, you know, this had happened to me. Like, apparently other people had had similar incidents and they hadn't really thought about it as, you know, covert racism until, you know, someone had kind of brought it back up. Like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. This had happened to me. You know, then we did the Philip Moore thing next after that. Um, oh, I didn't catch you know, that. Yeah, I'll yeah. have to look into um, that one. Yeah, now as soon as like the uh, Amy Cooper and George Floyd like things like happened immediately, like everyone that was like, yeah, we need to like have Philip talk about all this. Like, just his his interview was already done, so oh, we were awesome. just like, okay, we need we need to kind of like he would absolutely have something to say on this. Um, and it just ended up being like, just ended up being great timing where it could follow my piece. Like afterwards. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah. I'm going to go, um, back to, so, I, cause we, I do got to wrap this yeah, up as much as I topic, love, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love talking about all this stuff. Um, so I'm going to ask, what um, yeah, go. what advice do you have to people that are go- like going through similar things as far as the family dynamic and um, having addiction kind of being prevalent and and uh, those traumatic things? Like, what were some things that helped you and or things that you would have done differently or that you wish would have been handled differently? What what are some things that you be willing to share with with the listeners oh yeah um the first thing i want to say is like it's having self-recognition but hey when you're in the barrel of it then it's kind of hard to recognize that you might have an issue uh-huh. um i that it's a double-edged sword you can tell someone hey well why aren't you aware of your problem but on the other hand what if they're not aware of their <laughs> a problem um sure kind of going back to what I said earlier, it's like, hey, being able to just say to someone like, hey, like not just say, hey, you have a problem, but it's like, hey, here's what I see, you know, like from the outside, but but not do it in this like judgmental way, because that's the first thing that's going to drive anyone away and put them on the attack is for you to be like, yo, you have a problem. It's like fucking up things for me. Or it's like, hey, you are doing things to mess up. So like you're messing up X, Y, Z things. Like if you put them on the attack, then they're not going to want to speak help. They're just like, yo, I'm just going to shun people away because you don't understand or you want to put me in this place to put me down. It's like, and the first thing if you're in an addiction is you're going to like find any reason to kind of shy away from people that are telling you not to do the thing that you're in. I think being open and just be like, you know, like, uh, friend of mine he's like he was another contributor for one and he came out here 
got real into drug culture and he would tell me a lot of things that were just like seriously like wow okay that's that's some really heavy stuff but I approach it just saying you know what I'm here for you dude like no judgment like you can tell me everything and anything I will not judge you and it's like you're almost playing the role of therapist you're like just honestly just tell me things and if you, you can get if you can find that one person to be honest, like you can be honest with and for them not to judge you like that, it can make the world a difference. That person needs someone to confide in, especially if like they recognize they're in a spiral. Um, it means everything to that person to try to understand, you know, like that they're cared for and that their actions, yeah, they, yeah, their actions might suck, but that doesn't make them a bad person. Um, I think if, huh? Good. Oh, I was just going to say you, you're doing a fucking great job. <laughs> you're saying yeah. all of the things <laughs> that we normally say. So that's yes. Keep going. Sorry. No, it's like, yeah, it doesn't make you a bad person. It's just like, it's just a bad, you know, bad circumstance. And most people don't put two and two together. They assume that, Hey, if you are doing this, like you have, you engage in X, Y, Z behaviors, you're a bad person going, you know what, you're not a bad person until you do some really bad things. Like, but there is chance for redemption, but you do have to work at it. You have to regain that trust. And so like, if you break it with those people and, but that shouldn't be a deterrent. I mean, like I said, finding, finding someone you can, you know, you can confide in makes all the world a difference. But, once you have that confidence, try not to break that trust because it's then it makes it harder for that person to want to, you know, emotionally invest in your action. It's like, and that's, it's no one intent on it happening. It just, you know, what, what's going on? Shit happens. You know, like you don't intend to go down this path. You don't intend on hurting anybody. You don't intend on doing the things you've done to have those addictions or to have these problems in life. It's just, it's just a circumstance of life that you have to kind of go, okay, there's a chance for me. There is hope. There is redemption. It's just, yeah, it's not even redemption. It's just, there is a chance for me to be okay. You know, take it one at a time and try to be a better person today and tomorrow and, you know, just take it a day at a time. Yeah. I, well, I think that that's, I appreciate that. Man, I, I appreciate as as far as you've been willing to dive into all of this stuff. Um, where where can people find your your work um, and and the things that you guys are doing um, as far as rollerblading is concerned? If you want to donate to like my cat Tom, uh, yeah, he could definitely use some uh, cat food. <laughs> sure, uh, twenty five pounds of cat, but not <laughs> um, you can either. Find um, my body of work, I guess, on Instagram. It's uh, JM Morbez. Um, pretty easy to find me. Like it's pretty much just my initials. Uh, there's bmag uh, dash uh for all the work that Kevin Woodall and myself are doing in rollerblading, um, along with. Ryan uh, Lowy, who's back on staff, and Tyler uh, Farrington out of Texas as our associate editor. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's those are really the two best places to see like, what we're up to. 
Fantastic. Well, John, thank you again so freaking much for doing this. And uh, you be well, stay safe, and, and we'll talk to you soon, man. All right. Uh, talk to you soon and uh, wish the wife a uh, fair night, I guess. <laughs> I absolutely, <laughs> I'll pass along the message. All right. Uh, talk to you soon. Uh, sure. All right. Peace, man. All right. Thanks for sticking around, guys. That was uh, a, a great episode. I'm really glad that, that John was able to tell us as, as much as he did about um, trauma and uh, things that he's been through and, and how addiction has affected his personal life. Um, if you or someone you know is in uh, need of uh, addiction recovery, um, you can go to aa.org. Um, it's a good place to start, but there are all kinds of options out there uh, for yourself or for your loved ones. And um, as always, please be sure to subscribe and share. And if you'd like to be featured on the show, feel free to message in on our Facebook page at DuckDuckGrayDuke, or you can email in DuckDuckGrayDuke at gmail.com. Uh, you can remain anonymous, uh, or like John, you can uh, feel free to use your, your name. Um, but otherwise, thank you guys all so much, and with that, we will pass.